Welcome to the Robert Lewis Sermons Podcast, a collection of sermons from Dr. Lewis during his time as teaching pastor at Fellowship Bible Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. We desire to see all who are Christ followers grow in faith and maturity through the use of this podcast. Here's this week's message. We're going to talk about the good news that comes from God's Word to us, especially at this uh, special season of the year. If you've just walked in with us, and I know from talking to people, there's some of you who are visiting and guests with us. If you've just walked in, we've been in a series called Carving Out a Godly Culture. And let me tell you where we are. I want to use a diagram on the screen. It's also in your bulletin. But uh, this diagram is somewhat like you see in the mall when you walk in. A lot of you have been in the mall lately, so you go in and you get this little directory, and it's got an X by it that says, You are here. In your bulletin, it tells you where we are in the series. There's a little X that says that we're in this little circle that says dependence upon God's grace. And we have to ask the question, well, how did we get here? Well, we started this series back in September with a very important question. And that question was, what does it take for a culture to become morally and spiritually vibrant? It's a good question, especially in light of the culture in which we live, that we feel like we're losing our grip on moral and spiritual vibrancy. What does it take for a culture to reclaim that, where people can live without coercion with a healthy and noble spiritual and moral conviction? Well, that's what's at the center of this diagram, that healthy moral and spiritual conviction. But our journey began on the outside of this circle. If you look on the outside, it says uh, this moral constitution, the law. That's where we started in our series in September. And for 12 weeks, we saw how God's law set forth 10 commandments that framed a universal moral constitution for all people for all time. And when peoples and cultures give heed to that kind of morality, the culture pulsates with health. When that morality is put aside and immorality is, is called morality in a particular culture, that culture begins to unravel and death begins to set in. There are moral absolutes, rights and wrongs, that will not go away. And we saw that in this moral constitution. Last week, though, we entered the second circle. That's That says honest personal evaluation. What we found out last week, and that was a dark, deep sermon, what we found out last week is just because we know what's right, it doesn't mean that we're going to do what's right. Just because we hear what's right and wrong doesn't necessarily allow a culture to embrace that with conviction. And we say, well, what's wrong with ourselves? Why do we see the law and then look at our lives and they don't mix, kind of like oil and water? They just stay separate. What's the problem? And we talked uncomfortably about the truth concerning ourselves. And we found out that we have a very serious problem. Now, everyone has problems. I like the little letter that a 23-year-old wrote Ann Landers about her problem. Here's what she said. She said, Dear Ann, I'm an attractive 23-year-old woman with a great executive job, money in the bank, a wonderful fiancé. You think I haven't a worry in the world, but I'm a nervous wreck because I don't know how to tell my fiancé about the problem. When I'm feeling really stressed or tired, I dress and act like a baby. I have adult-sized diapers, rubber pants, baby pajamas, etc. I put these on, feed myself baby food from a jar, and drink baby juice from a bottle, and then I fall asleep with a pacifier and blankie. This soothes me, 
When I wake up in the morning, I'm refreshed and ready to take on my serious responsibilities. I'm perfectly normal except for this kinkiness. But I know I can't keep it from my fiancé forever. I just can't muster the courage to tell him, and I'm desperate for help. Please advise 23-year-old baby in Ohio. Well, that's a problem, isn't it? That's a big problem. In fact, if my wife came home and saw me after a stressed-out day in rubber pants and a bottle in my mouth, I'd probably have even a bigger problem, to tell you the truth. It's true everyone has problems, but last week we talked about a problem everyone has. And it's a very serious problem. It's a universal plague, and it's called the depravity problem. Simply put, what depravity means is I am a fallen creature and I have a sinful nature. And I want you to write down three phrases in your outline as I summarize that from last week. First of all, it just simply means, depravity means I'm bad off. The scripture says that I was born into this world alienated from God. Fact is, Ephesians 4.18 uses that very word, alienated. It says, you were alienated, excluded from the life of God. That's how I came into the world. And apart from something bridging that tremendous gap, reconnecting me with the life of God, that's how I die. And that's a serious problem. To die alienated from God, that's bad, off. But secondly, depravity means I'm bad within. I'm bad within. Paul says that in Romans 7 when he says in verse 19, for the good that I wish I do not do, but I often practice the very evil I don't wish. And you've been there, hadn't you? <laughs> you know, we know what's right. We just simply can't muster the courage to do it or the conviction to do it or something. And so the very thing we don't want to do, we do. Even while we're doing it, we're saying, I shouldn't be doing this, but I can't stop. I don't want to stop. And there's this tremendous conflict and war within my soul. And Paul goes on to say in the very next verse, I find then the principle that evil is present in me. That's a problem. I'm bad within. I'm bad off. And then lastly, in time I'm bad, I'm bad outwardly. My corrupt nature eventually erupts on the surface of my life and it hurts me. And by the way, it hurts others. Oftentimes it even hurts others worse than me. It may be my anger. It may be my greed. And I just can't stop working because I've got to have more to feel good about myself. Or it may be my immorality or my violence or my alcoholism or my worry or my drug abuse or my slander. Or just simply it may be my inability to love rightly the people I say I love the most. And all of that, I hurt myself and I hurt others as my Badness within erupts on the surface and I become bad without. And I don't know what to do about that. And somewhere at some point in everyone's life, there's a haunting moment, a dark moment, an irrepressible moment when I'm sitting there and I'm honestly evaluating myself, like that circle said a moment ago. I'm just evaluating myself. And I realize something's wrong with me. I don't have it all together. I may look good on the outside, but I don't have it all together, and I don't know what to do about that. Is there any hope out there? And that brings us this morning to the good news. There is hope out there. It's a very special place. I want you to hear me from the very start. It's a mystical place in many regards. It's a place of transformation and change. It's where in a moment my whole nature is jolted and altered forever. The counseling didn't do it necessarily. 
The education didn't do it. Growing up in a good home didn't do it. I have all these feelings. But in a moment, there's an encounter that jolts my inner self and I am changed from within and my old self has been replaced with something I can't describe, but the Bible describes it as a new self. What causes that? Where is that place? Well, in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, Paul tells us where it is. It says the place is in a person. It says if any man or woman be in Christ, listen, he is a new creature, and old things have passed away, and behold, in a moment, new things have come. You see, the cure is in Christ. But I want you to hear me this morning say this. What does that mean? Really? For an individual life? Well, I want to give you two stories that will illustrate what that means. And these two stories come from two extremes. And I, I don't know if you are like me, but I like to watch Crossfire on CNN, you know, where you got two different groups, liberal and conservative, from the furthest ends of the perspective, debating the issues and matching, matching wits about their positions, trying to find some answer, at least to convince the other side. Well, I want to give two extreme ends of life. And on the far left-hand side, I want to give you the irreligious life. My story. And on the far right, I want to give you the very most religious right story you can give. Nick's story. But I want you to see that these two stories, though poles apart, have a common thread concerning the problem and the cure. First, my story. You know, I grew up in a home where spiritual dialogue would have been as natural as the ACLU calling for school-sponsored prayer. It just didn't happen. For 18 years while I was there, in my home, I can't remember a real serious spiritual discussion ever. We went to church occasionally. We were on the church rolls of a major denominational church, but we just didn't go. And, and really, as I thought back on this, I can't remember one time in 18 years when my family prayed together. Not one time. We came from an irreligious home. In fact, I remember one Christmas, my mother suggested that we all gather around the Christmas tree and read the Christmas story. It was on Christmas Eve. Now, looking from an adult perspective, it reminds me what my dad must have felt. Now, he didn't go to church, and uh, making that suggestion, I'm sure, made him so uncomfortable. And he resisted that. And my mom pressed forward, we need to do that. We need to do something. It's Christmas Eve. And they ended up having a fight, and he left. But mom pressed on. She got the three kids. We gather here, the three boys. We're all sitting there around the Christmas tree. And uh, we start to read the Christmas story, but we realize we have to have a Bible. So it took a while to find a Bible. It took even longer to fumble through the pages to find the Christmas story. And then my older brother read it. And when he finished, nothing. No person suddenly saying, oh, that's what Christ means to me. No person kind of explaining from their own life their encounter with Jesus Christ giving some fuller explanation to the spiritual side of that historical story, there was just spiritual emptiness in that moment. That felt awkward and uncomfortable. Nobody said anything. I guess we all felt okay because we had, quote, done our religious duty for Christmas. But it was all out of character for this family that there was just this fuel injection of a spiritual story in the midst of a very irreligious, non-spiritual home. And it was strange. To me, Christmas cheer growing up when I was a boy was the great Lewis Christmas party that occurred right before Christmas Eve when all the family came in and the boys snuck in 
and got big cups of the whiskey-laced eggnog. And we would all sneak back to the back room and drink it. That was Christmas cheer to me in my home. Now, I want you to know my philosophy of life was pretty simple. In fact, I remember sharing it with a history professor my first year at the University of Arkansas. He said, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I told him with a quick response, I want to be happy. That's what I wanted to be when I grew up. I just wanted to be happy. And that first year at Arkansas, I worked hard at being happy, doing what a lot of freshmen do. I drank a lot. I partied a lot. I got crazy a lot. I acted macho. And I did everything I could for the peer group I was entering into to like me. I wanted to be liked. Because when I felt liked, I felt happy. But as hard as I tried through the rest of that year, life started to be not so much fun. And it bothered me. Athletics was such fun for me in high school. I love my teammates. I love my coach. But you know, when you're playing football for the Razorbacks, it takes on a different color. And suddenly it didn't feel fun. And the coach really didn't want to get to know me. He wanted to use me, but not know me. And it became serious. And it felt like work. And it wasn't so much fun anymore. And the message was clear. You don't perform, you're not needed here. I also found that my adolescent wildness from high school, where, you know, we'd get a few beers and run around and push the limits and knock down a few stop signs on Friday night and stuff like that. You know, that began to be now on a continuous basis in college, except it was turned up to a much higher level. And suddenly seeing a cute co-ed that I admired, staggering drunk on Friday night, throwing off a second floor balcony, or watching a friend act like a fool weekend after weekend after weekend. You know, those snapshots were like flashbacks to a 19-year-old because they had striking similar similarities to the home that I grew up in. I began to see in my friends the future because I'd lived the future with an alcoholic dad. And I knew what it felt like for three little boys looking for direction. And it didn't feel so good. But you know what's crazy about your depraved nature? I saw all that. But rather than stopping those kind of things, I just did them even more. It's kind of an odd thing. When you can't retreat anywhere because you don't know what the alternatives are, you run into the fire. And so I drank even more, partied even harder, got crazy, even more crazy. I did all those things in kind of a sordid social insanity. But you do those kind of things when there's no alternatives. And that was my life. Well, there began to be these haunting questions, you know, that happened to everyone, those moments where you begin to look at yourself and go, who am I? Where am I going? What's the meaning of life? But you know what the worst questions were? The worst questions were deep at night when you would look at yourself and think about yourself and reflect on yourself and say to yourself, do you like what you're becoming? Is this what you want to be? Like this? As it says on number one on your outline, I didn't know much, but I knew I was lost. I knew I was lost. I could identify with the ancient secular Roman poet, Juvenal, who in a poem said, Nemo malus felix, which means no wicked man is happy. And that went 
cross-grain to my philosophy of life, wanting to be happy. In the spring of 68, I walked into a room where some friends of mine were, and they were having a Bible study. I walked in there, and that term, by the way, Bible study, was totally foreign to me at the time. But by the end of that evening, one of the young men was confronting me or sharing with me the claims of Jesus Christ. That He was the way, the truth, and the life of all men. That His death was for my wrongdoing. That He came that I might have a real life. That He held the promise to the next life. That there was something called life eternal. And let me tell you, for the first time I was hearing an alternative to the things that I couldn't stop doing even though I wanted to. At the end of that presentation, there came what I call the question. The question was, would you like to ask Jesus Christ into your life? Now I want you to know I came from the far left, the irreligious left. And asking me at that moment, after 30 minutes, whether I'd like to invite Jesus Christ in my life was like saying, Robert, would you like to jump the Grand Canyon? Well, yes, but come on, really. I mean, people don't really do that, do they? And yet at the same time, that question, as strange as it was, moved me. It moved me. I couldn't understand why. There was something in me that wanted to respond. It urged me to accept the request. And I started thinking, is this crazy or is this real? Could Jesus Christ be? Really be? My mind was saying, come on, let's get out of here. My heart was saying, no, let's go for it. And in all that kind of debate inside, you know your heart where you're hearing all this stuff and it's weird, in that midst of fog and foolishness, there was a grain of faith. And as number two says, I didn't have much faith, <laughs> believe me. But at that moment, what I had, I put in Jesus Christ. As number three says, I didn't change much at first, at least outwardly, but something profound did change in me inwardly. You know, outwardly, my friends probably saw me the next day just as I'd always been. In fact, I want you to be, I want to be truthful with you. In the next few weeks, I didn't change much. I did some of the crazy things I'd always done. But in the weeks that followed, I want you to also know that inside, in the dialogue, in the internal dialogue of Robert Lewis, I was different. I sensed I was different, and I had to ask the question, could this be him? Him? Even with little outside encouragement, I began to kind of feel the need to know God better. I began to want to change. And when I thought of change, I thought of Him. And I thought of Him effortlessly. It didn't, I didn't have to work it up. I didn't have to go to church. It just came to me effortlessly. Something had changed in me. And when I went out and did wrong things, I didn't just, you know, blow it off. All of a sudden, I felt grief inside of me, and it felt like I was grieving Him. That's what it felt like. Old things were passing away. Something was becoming new, and it felt like fresh air. It was the aroma of hope, direction, promise. Years later, I came across a theological word for my experience. It's the theological word regeneration. Here's what J.I. Packer says about regeneration. He says, regeneration is an inner recreating of fallen human nature. By the gracious action of the Holy Spirit, regeneration in Christ changes the natural disposition from lawless, godless self-seeking which dominates man. Oh, that was me. 
By the way, that's also depravity. Into one of trust, love, repentance, and a desire for loving compliance with God. It just happens. Regeneration. I found my story, by the way, in the Bible. It's written there. It's of me. I want you to turn there. I want to read it for you. It's in Titus, the little letter of Titus, chapter 3. It was always there, but it now tells my story. Titus 3, and I want you to look at verse 3. For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, and how does it appear? It appears in a moment, in the human heart. When it appeared, He saved me, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration, renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that being justified by His grace, we might be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And then He ends that little statement with verse 8. Do you see it there? It says, this is a trustworthy statement. Twenty-something years later, seven years later, I stand before you and I say, that was a trustworthy statement for my life. From the way out, far out, irreligious left. That's only one story. Let's go to the other side to the very religious right. And I want you to turn to John 3, and I want to look at the original Old Saint Nick story. Okay? So now that I've got your interest, you turn there with me to John chapter 3. This story is filled with piety and self-righteousness and religion and ritual and creeds and services and hot religious holidays and all the fanfare you could possibly want, but there's still the problem. And there's still the need for the cure. Look at verse 1 of chapter 3. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. That means he was a theological ruler. He was a theological scholar and a spiritual leader of the people of Israel. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you've come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered and said to him, well, actually, he didn't answer him, really. He just said to him, religious eyeball to religious eyeball. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Now, I want you to know when he says that, Nicodemus is not baffled by the term born again. That was a phrase common among Jews at the time. You were born again when you were circumcised on the eighth day to a new life in Israel. A pagan who was baptized in the community of Israel was born again to a new life of being a Jew. When you were married, you were born again to a new life, and some of us have been born to that new life. When you reached the age of 40, you were born again. When you became a rabbi, you were born again. If I remember correctly, there were like eight born-again experiences in Judaism. 
What I want you to know, and the reason I want you to hear this, Nicodemus' puzzlement is not over born again. It's that he's experienced all the born again experiences Judaism has to offer. He's been circumcised. He's married. He's past 40. He's a rabbi. He's not just a rabbi. He is the rabbi in all of Israel. And he's old. And there are no more born again experiences. And he's very religious. And yet Jesus looks at him and says, and the key words are in verse 3, he looked at him. And he says, truly, truly, I say to you, you still have to be born again. Nicodemus says, I, I, I don't know what you're talking about. You've lost me. I've done it all. I've been born again. All there is to be born again. I've done it all. I've experienced it all. And Jesus says, no. No, you haven't. You still got the problem and you still don't have the cure. You don't have it all. Now I want you to know here this morning, the hardest person to reach who's suffering from depravity is the religionist. The pagan listens. The religionist gives sophisticated arguments for why he doesn't need what I'm about to say. It's the person who is churched. They've grown up in the church. They've seen the sights of the church. They've heard the word since birth. So much so that it's inoculated them against the real thing. They've sung the songs, recited the creeds, and done dutifully the creeds and the, and the good deeds that have been set before them. But what they haven't experienced and what they don't know about is the life-changing moment-in-time transformation of meeting the real God that bent their nature away from the depravity side to the new life where the old has passed away and new things have come. They assume in doing church they've done it all. And they have done it all. Except they've never been regenerated by the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 5. It says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born... They say, Remember, he's speaking to the Billy Graham of the day. Unless you're born of the Spirit, you can't enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is only flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you. Why do you marvel? You must be born again. And what is that like? It's like the wind that blows where it wants to, and you hear the sound of it, but you don't know where it's coming from or where it is. You don't know when it's going to arrive in your life. You can't manufacture it. It just shows up and knocks on your soul. But when it does, it's the Spirit and Nicodemus said to him, like a guy who was hearing French when he spoke English, I don't know what you're talking about. He's dutiful, he's religious, and he's rotting in his depravity at the same time. How can these things be? And Jesus says, are you not the teacher of Israel? And you don't understand these things? And he didn't. The language of real spiritual life escapes the religionist. He speaks one language of religion and ritual and the satisfaction of being in stained glass buildings and just feeling things Sunday to Sunday. But real spiritual life, he has no language for. And they miss like two ships in the night. It was the brilliant scholar A.T. Robertson who said... This well-known authorized teacher of Israel was told by Jesus that his Pharisaic theology had made him immune to spiritual apprehension. He was very religious. 
but he was lost. And he was still depraved. And when he dies, he will not see the kingdom of God. Now, if you're here today and your faith rests on great liturgies of the church or traditions, and even as I talk, you think about maybe the denomination you grew up in or your parents, or you think of stained glass and great creeds and high-sounding hymns, and all of that's kind of church stuff. There's a good chance you may be lost if you don't think of Christ first in your relationship with Him. There's a good chance that all that religion has perhaps just simply inoculated you against the real thing. And that's what still escapes you, and that's why you still struggle the way you do in your lostness. In fact, if I start talking about the religionist and it bothers you a little bit, and you sit there kind of saying, well, I, I've been a Baptist all my life, or I've been a Catholic all my life, or my parents were, or we, we're Presbyterians that go all the way back to Scotland. You talk like that, you're talking the language of Nicodemus who said, we're children of Abraham. But Jesus said, it doesn't matter. You're lost. And you'll not see the kingdom of God. You don't have the real thing. So what is the real thing? Well, this passage gives us three little phrases that tells us what the real thing is. Look at verse 5. The real thing is found in verse 5 when he says, born of the Spirit, which means a supernatural rebirth. By that, it means it's not something you can make happen. And religious people love to make it happen. They like to get their hands on it. They can control it. But being born of the Spirit, you can't make happen. God makes it happen. You can only receive it by faith. In fact, if you'll just turn back one page to John chapter 1, you see that stated very clearly as it presents Jesus Christ into the world. Verse 12 says, But as many as received Him, that's all they could do, just receive Him. To them He gave them the right, which means the power to start becoming children of God. Those who believe in His name. Those who were born, notice, not of blood. In other words, I'm not born a Christian because my parents were Christians. I can't get it out of blood. I can't get it out of the will of the flesh, my natural ability. I can't make it happen by reforming my life and being a good guy. I can't get it noticed by the will of man. I'm just going to determine to do it. Determine to be good. No, notice the last three words. Who were born but of God. Real spiritual life is not a religion. It's a life-changing encounter that moves you past forgiveness of sin to a new life because you've received a new nature in an instant as your spirit was joined with the Holy Spirit in the washing of renewal. That's what the Scripture says. Secondly, notice the word in verse 7. It's a key word. I've underlined it. It's very important. It's the word must. Must. That tells us that the real thing means an irreplaceable rebirth. There is no substitute for this birth. Church can't replace it. A religious experience can't replace it. Good deeds can't replace it. Gifts of money can't replace it. Personal reformation, I stopped drinking, I stopped smoking, I stopped gambling. That's not a substitute for it. Marrying a wonderful Christian man or woman can't replace it. There's no substitute for it. You're lost unless it's yours. You must. Then finally, notice in verse 7 the other word. It's the word you. The real thing means it's got to be personal, just between you and God. Your mom and dad can't do it for you. 
your friends, being with good Christian friends or whatever. We are only reborn when in our individual hearts we in faith reach up to a living God and by His grace and mercy only He reaches back to us. I want you to repeat after me. I must be born again. I must be. Say it with me. I must be. See, it's not going to be any other way. I must be. And unless that takes place in an encounter between me and the living God, everything else is extraneous. Did you know our spiritual rebirth is the reason for Christmas? It's the re- You know the bumper stickers that say, Jesus is the reason for the season? Can I tell you? No, He's not. Jesus is not the reason for this season. Christmas is about us. Now, of course, we honor Jesus' birth, but the Bible says our birth, not His birth, is the focal point of Christmas. Some of you don't believe me. Let me read you the prophet Isaiah. We sing it. It's in Handel's Messiah. For unto us a child is given. To us. In the first century, the desperateness of us is the reason for Christ's coming. That's why it was a Savior coming. Because of our darkness and depravity and our inability to make the necessary changes within. That's why the angels, when they announced, as recorded by Luke, the coming of Jesus the Messiah, they said, listen, today in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior. Christ the Lord. We are the reason for the season. And our rebirth, not His birth, is the point. It's the point of it all. So what's your story? I've told you mine, I've told you Nick's. What's your story? It doesn't matter if it comes from the irreligious left or the religious right or somewhere in between. The question is, have you been born again? Have you experienced a life-changing encounter with Jesus Christ that a theologian would call real, authentic regeneration? You know, when I ask that question, if there's a pulsating yes and kind of a sense of, I'm an American and I hear American being spoken, you're okay. It's like, it's like there's something in my heart that just goes, yeah, I'm there. But for others, if when I'm speaking here this morning, as happened in the first service, you're sitting there and I ask that question about real regeneration and you kind of go, I'm not sure if I know what he's talking about. See, you're kind of with Nick right now. Are you trying to start saying, well, I grew up in the church. I've always gone to church. See how that rings hollow this morning? Maybe there's just something missing there and just, you're just kind of wondering, like several young men who came to me this morning. Maybe that's where you find yourself. But there's not this pulsating, I know that I know I'm a child of God. Can I ask you a very personal question? Today, do you need to know Jesus Christ in the way that I've discussed? Are you ready From your side, you can't make it happen. Only God can make it happen. But from your side, 
Would you today, in this special time of year, would you be ready if you have doubts to reach up and say, I want to know that. I want to be blessed, not with just a good church. I want to be blessed from within with the work of the Holy Spirit. I want you to think on that as we bow our heads and close our eyes. I'd like everybody to do that. And I'd like to give you the opportunity to do that if you're there. Would you bow your heads with me? Close your eyes, please. And I want to ask you, would you like to know Jesus Christ in that way? That's just you now, alone with God. But would you like to know Jesus Christ in that way? Would you like to have the opportunity to be touched in such a way that He comes in in ways that we don't understand, whether it's a feeling or not a feeling, but because we've asked, He comes in and He bends that nature away from lawlessness to righteousness and love for Him, which only He can give. Yes, to forgive sin. Yes, to remaking a life. But most importantly, to find my nature, my very nature changed. Only God can do that. If you want that, would you pray with me? Father, I want You more than anything else. I see that I need You. I see what my life is. I see that I'm never going to have the answers. But I want You to come into me. And I want You to change me. I know I need more than just somebody to forgive me, but that's important. But I also know, no, I need You to change me from within. Would You do that? If you would ask that in sincerity, Jesus Christ will do that. He's promised He would. And you can know for sure today if you ask that, that He will do for you what He did for a 19-year-old college student who knew nothing about spiritual life. You will be born again. Now with your heads bowed, I want to ask you to do something personal between you and me. If you prayed that prayer this morning, if you really meant that from your heart like others did in the first service, I'm not going to embarrass you in any way, but would you raise your hand? Just slip it up just for a moment. Hold it up there just for a moment. Go ahead and leave it up just for a second so I can look. I so appreciate that. Look at the numbers. That you would do that. This is really a great day of celebration. New people in the kingdom of God because they want Jesus Christ in them. And I tell you, Jesus Christ says, yes, I want you. We're going to sing a song in just a moment. But for those of you who raised your hand, I really want to encourage you. I'm going to stand over here on the right-hand side when we finish, and I want you to join me just for a moment. I just want to greet you, meet you, encourage you. But let us thank the Lord that many, many new births, the real reason for Christmas, has occurred right in our midst. Father, we thank You for those whose hearts are tender towards You, who've turned their lives over to you this morning. I pray that you would grace them with your presence in a way that can be felt as well as being by faith. I pray that you would encourage them to seek out godly people for encouragement. That you would turn their hearts as you do in regeneration towards a love for your word and a love for Christian people and your church. I pray that you would lead them to the kind of people who would uplift them in this new faith. But most of all, 
I pray that You would reassure them over and over again that in this one simple moment, You have wedded Your life with them forever. Thank You. Thank You. In Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to the Dr. Robert Lewis Sermon Podcast. If you were encouraged by this message, please rate and review this podcast. In addition, share this with your friends and community. This podcast was produced by the team at Sound of a Rose. You can learn more about the team at soundofarose.com.